Stephanie, it's been a pretty terrific year of podcasting, I must say. I, I think we've learned a lot along the way. Today's episode, we're going to go back and look at some of the favorite bits from some of the interviews just to end this year. Uh, how's that sound? That sounds good. So is an appropriate place to start episode one? Sure. And starting with Dan Dresner, he talked about thinking about what it would be like to take his book of the ideas industry up north and, and what the role of academics as thought leaders, since I guess us having a podcast makes us thought leaders. So let's listen to that. So I guess the answer I would offer is that, you know, the ideas industry warns that there are two kinds of thinkers out there, right? There's, there's public intellectuals and there's thought leaders. Public intellectuals are Isaiah Berlin's equivalent of a fox. They know a little bit about uh, many things. The hedgehog is the, per the thing, person who knows one big thing. And that essentially there's been sort of structural changes in the way we operate that have advantaged thought leaders at the expense of public intellectuals. And some of these things I've mentioned before, the erosion of trust and authority and expertise, the rise of political polarization, and also the rise of plutocrats that are you know, willing to fund particular thinkers. Uh, the thing I would warn you is that this will, in can't, you know, it sounds like will create a recipe for thought leaders uh, to thrive, uh, whereas for public intellectuals just to survive. Now, that said, in Canada, the difference is, is that, as you say, if the think tank community is extremely thin, um, and if plutocrats are not terribly powerful, uh, congratulations, it means academics are actually for once in the driver's seat. Because if academics actually have you know significant federal funding, and I know that most Canadian higher education institutions are state funded, um, this means you actually have the institutional infrastructure and advantage in a way that uh, you know a small think tank or the occasional plutocratically funded person would not. The day you know the, the thing you're facing is are the Jordan Petersons of the world, the people who you know can function as sort of individual autonomous thought leaders and somehow monetize their musings. I would say that, that in this kind of world, the academy can do two things to maintain its relevance. The first is you need to peer review the hell out of the few thought leaders you have. So, you know, really have some fun going after Jordan Peterson. I think that, you know, if, if Jordan Peterson really wants to self-style himself as, as, you know, an intellectual, I think it's entirely worth challenging that notion, finding out exactly, you know, where his ideas uh, hold up and, and where is he sounding like absolute crap. Um, and that would be worth doing. The second thing is, is that the one way in which you can make the state pay attention, and there's been some really interesting work done on this by Judith Kelly and, and Beth Simmons, is on the issues you care about, start developing indices and metrics and rankings of how Canada does in the world. Um, because if there is anything it turns out that countries care about, it's how they do relative to other countries. We're like high school that way. Canada is very much that. Exactly. And Canada, I think, is uniquely sensitive to that, uh, given it, its particular uh, areas. So, yeah, if I was you know, telling you what to do, rank how well Canada does in terms of R2P. Rank how well Canada does in terms of providing global public goods relative to other countries. You know, governments are, are going to pay attention to that stuff. Just on the role of academics as thought leaders, uh, I don't know if that's really well cultivated in Canada compared with the United States. When I think about how we are trained, let's say, as, as scholars, 
or even during our, our graduate programs, there isn't a huge emphasis on professional development. So I think this is an area maybe where the Canadian Defence and Security Network can make a real contribution and maybe providing some of that support and that training to cultivate that idea of the academic as a public intellectual. Well, I think that there's no training in the United States either for this. As someone who's trained in the United States and, and worked there, we didn't have much experience in this. But I do think that there is an American effort, such as bridging the gap to to be more conscious of these things. And so it makes sense for us to try to do so and to have actually an organization like Bridging the Gap be part of our effort. So I definitely- Yeah, no offense, uh, <laughs> no offense, Steve, but there is quite a big generational difference between when the, when you were a graduate student and now. And you, you mentioned Bridging the Gap, but there's a lot of other networks and opportunities like that that have put a big emphasis on academics as graduate students learning how to write op-eds, learning how to intervene in the media, and learning how to cultivate their social media presence. I've only been in Canada for 19 years, <laughs> uh, but you, you, that's a valid point, although I still think from what I know of American training that I don't think this is actually taking that seriously graduate school. I think it's something that people pick up along the way, either through mentoring or through some of these other programs that exist outside of graduate school. Our second uh, hit from the Dan Dresdner interview is his discussion of toddler in chief, which is good timing for this, given that uh, Donald Trump has had some fun uh, this past week uh, being in the spotlight with the impeachment process. What you've been doing on Twitter has been every time somebody sympathetic to Trump refers to him in some sort of behavior as being immature, uh, you you have this ongoing thread of up to, what, 770 or so? 777. 777. Different tweets that have different instances of somebody actually who's a supporter of Trump referring to him as being a toddler in some way. I have more than that. I have a book manuscript. I understand that. My yes. question about the book manuscript is it... What is it besides a list of 777 tweets? It's a fair point. Um, actually, the, there's now we're close to 777 uh, examples in the book. The book is a w w makes two arguments. The first is, yeah, I'm saying Trump acts like a toddler, um, and to demonstrate that, I have it broken down into a series of toddler traits: mm. uh, temper tantrums, oppositional behavior, um, impulse control, short attention span, uh, knowledge deficits. <laughs> Um, you know, you name it. Uh, you know, each of these chapters opens with a quote from the American Academy of Pediatrics. <laughs> uh, That's a great move. Des describing the, uh, the the toddler behavior, um, and then sort of explaining, yeah, I'm pretty sure Trump is is guilty of this. The second point I'm trying to make in the book is that this is actually more of a problem now than it would have been 50 years ago during the Cold War, because as scary as it is that that Trump seems to have all of the developmental uh, defects that a, a toddler does. What is more disconcerting is that the president is far more unconstrained in terms of what uh, he or she can do than in the past. So essentially, you know, on a wide array of issues, Congress and the judiciary wound up investing the presidency with ever greater powers mm -hmm. because the president was seen as the last adult in the room at the exact moment that we elected a toddler to be president. So the title is Toddler in Chief? Uh, that is the title. The title is Toddler in Chief, What Donald Trump Can Teach Us About the Modern Presidency. This is uh, going to sell like hotcakes, uh, I'm sure. It, well, we'll see. Yeah. Uh, there's an audience for it. The, the nice thing about Trump is that there's a large audience who hates him, and they'll eat this up. It's part of the problem with our polarization, but that you can take advantage of polarization by selling to at least half of America, if not to the other half. 
and your publisher could not sell it to in Lubbock, Texas, for instance, because that's where I used to live, and I know there won't be any consumers there, but they could certainly sell it in cosmopolitan America. Well, furthermore, the great thing about Amazon is that, you know, before books online, is that even the people in Lubbock that might not like the president can order it that way and, you know, read it. In a plain brown package, exactly. I'm sure that would be very good. And that list is now up to more than a thousand different citations of different tweets that refer to different people referring to Trump as being a toddler. And Dan took this and made it into a book. He floated around a few weeks ago, the cover of the book, which is beautiful, and we'll try to have a picture on the podcast page of the new book, Toddler in Chief. And so this is where he discusses his book, and it's actually much more than I thought it was. So what do you think, Steph? Do you think you're going to go out and buy this book? Yes, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, before this summer, I didn't think impeachment would happen. And I don't think that you did either. You had the, that Mean Girls meme on Twitter saying, stop trying to make impeachment happen. It's not going to happen. So I guess we need a new meme that says uh, impeachment is so fetch. Uh, deep into the Mean Girls references this morning. Well, the one thing I explained over the summer is that what I st- what I really meant by that was don't count on impeachment to solve your problems. Right. That is, the House might impeach him, but he, Trump is not going to get convicted by the Senate. Everything we've heard this week from oh, McConnell, Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, has said there's no way that he's going to let this be seriously considered in the Senate. And maybe he will lose a bit of control, but he's not going to get... There's no way that you're going to have something like 20 senators, 20 Republican senators switch sides and vote with the Democrats on impeachment. So impeachment is going to happen. It has happened. Trump has been impeached by the House of Representatives, but it requires a two-thirds majority to the Senate. And that is simply not going to happen. There's no way the Republicans could do that. So I think the meme still stays. It just needs a longer explanation. Yeah, I don't think he can walk back from a meme. I think that (laughs) it's it's easy now that everything has gone down to say, well, let me qualify that meme. But the the fact is that uh, the vote happened, and and that is significant in itself, even though we're all pretty much certain of the outcome. Where this this makes me a little nervous is that this impeachment trial will be uh, like a reality show for Trump. He's already live-tweeted the House vote, and he fully intends on fanning the flames of this process for, for electoral gains. So this is the world we live in. He will wear impeachment like a badge of honor, uh, which is very Trump-esque. I suppose... Uh... And as Jacob Levy noted last night on Twitter, he earned more votes for impeachment than any other president who had been impeached, that obviously the U.S. Congress was smaller when Andrew Johnson was impeached. So Andrew Johnson did not get as many votes as as, as Trump voting for the man to be impeached. Bill Clinton uh, got a few votes less in the the House uh, in 1998. So Trump has set a record for a number of of Congress people voting to impeach a president. So woot for him. Yeah, I'll, I'll still savor this headline all day. So, yeah, that last bit is good, too. It's a, a bit more uplifting. But let's move away from Trump and talk about another episode. We both really liked the interview with Nada Bacos, who was talking about her new book of her experience at the CIA in the post-9-11 era. So you, you picked a few clips, and I also picked one. Well, the first clip we're going to listen to is of her discussing just life in the CIA. So why don't we just go to that? When you signed up to join the CIA, what was the biggest surprise? The biggest surprise was probably the fact that it's almost like a small city. I mean, there's a a job for absolutely everything between people who make disguises and alias documents to 
expert chefs to, you know, of course, all the technical stuff. I mean, it was just kind of shocking to me, just the breadth of experience and, and skill sets that the place has. Why are there expert chefs at the CIA? Can't tell you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is going to be an interesting podcast, but that's the average answer. <laughs> I'm kidding. They're just, just because, I mean, there's like the executive dining room. There's, I mean, it's just the whole, you know, conglomeration. And one of the things that we got back to later on in the interview is her discussion of sexism at the agency, because that was something that I was curious about and it came up in her book. How do you feel that sexism has hurt the agency and hurt the mission? And are they is the agency getting better at this stuff? Well, I mean, the agency, just like all the other institutions in all of America, started out. The roots of everything are sexist, right? Because women were not considered to be equals and hold positions for feels like very recent, recently, but <laughs> the CIA was no exception to that. It's a reflection of American society. And I think it is getting better. I mean, if you look at just the leadership now, there's women at the helm of not only the director of the agency, Gina Haspel, but also the director of operations, which was has never happened before. And the analyst side is, is less so. That's less impactful as far as there's a lot of more gender equality because it's ultimately based on how well can you write and analyze and brief? And if you can't do that, it just doesn't matter who you are. On the on the op side, there's a lot more bravado. There's a lot more of the old school sort of patriarchal mindset that seems to kind of stick around a lot longer than it needs to. But it's changing for sure. I guess the, the, the challenge here is that the CIA, of course, is smothered in secret sauce, which makes it harder for problems of sexism be revealed for them to be discussed in the public. And, and usually it's a public outcry that leads to Congress putting pressure on an agency or an organization to do more about changing the culture, changing the organization. And so I, I just am curious as to whether there's a sense that the CIA is moving slower because they haven't had as much public pressure on these issues, or are they moving faster because they have, it's clear that sexism hurts the operations in a way that may not be quite as obvious for other parts of government. I think that's, that's true. I'm not sure there's any agency that's able to really shed a, a public light on some of these issues. Like, I'm trying to think if there's any agency that's been, really been reformed based on that. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, the secrecy element makes it much more difficult because even internally, it's hard to get traction because a huge part of the organization won't know or hear anything about what has happened or transpired. So yeah, it, it can be problematic. Were you surprised to find that there's sexism with the CIA, Steph? No, I'm, I'm not surprised to hear that. You, I think, identified the specific challenge with regards to the CIA, which is with the veil of secrecy, it's a little harder to bring these organizations to account and to air some of those uh, problems more publicly. I was kind of curious to see the conversation evolve a bit uh, deeper in that direction. Yeah, I do find that the problem with all these agencies is is the more secrets you have, it pr- produces challenges for any kind of change. Uh, one advantage the United States has over Canada, at least until recently, is that there's a lot more oversight by the legislature, so that way there's pressure to do more. And the issue of sexual harassment in the military, for instance, has gotten a lot of pressure in the United States because you had individual Congress people and senators make a big deal out of it. And actually, well, that's one of the things that I found in the Steve David Phil book is that the treatment of personnel seems to be one of those issues that gets more play than other issues. And sexual harassment is something that has gotten a lot of play in a lot of 
democracies around the world in terms of their parliaments or legislatures paying attention to that issue. I do think that while I am fairly critical of the Canadian parliament and its ability to, and willingness to do oversight, they have been more attentive to this issue of sexual harassment and uh, sexual assault than other issues in the, within the Canadian Armed Forces. And then Nada Bakos also talked about PTSD. Uh, this is a topic that comes up in her book as well. So let's listen to the clip where she mentions her experience. First of all, professional help is useful. I have it. I had a great therapist that worked with me um, initially, you know, a few times a week. So I, I just really dislike the stigma around mental health issues in this mm -hmm. country that it still persists. Um, and people like Marianne Williamson, who have decided that they're somehow qualified to talk about whether or not people need antidepressants or anything else, it's business talking about that because she, she's not qualified. She sounds like a Scientologist, frankly. There's a huge need. When you look at the, the span of a lifetime, everybody is going to go through some kind of, you know, ups and downs. And to have that initial help and really push for that initially and focus on, on the therapy, I think is needed, especially for PTSD. If you know of someone suffering from, from PTSD or you're suspected, just figure out how to harness some kind of resources around them so that they can start seeing it for themselves. Because it wasn't until somebody actually who was familiar with PTSD said to me, this is what you're suffering from, mm -hmm. that I even had an inclination of what was happening. Mm -hmm. and, and you're doing okay these days? Or is this still something that is, is problematic? It's like if you get the right help mm -hmm. now and you go through all the <laughs> the un, not so fun therapy to get to the other side of this, yes, yeah. I mean, it's, I, you know, obviously I'm a different person than I was when I started the whole process, but I was going to be anyway, right? After at the agency going through 9-11 and the Iraq war and all of that kind of stuff, it's, it's going to change any person. Yeah, there's a resiliency of being out the other side of it, for sure. So I'm glad you asked that question to her, Steve, and I'm glad that she has made her struggle with PTSD part of the book. It's through sharing stories like hers that I think we can chip away at the stigma and have more meaningful conversations about people who we send to the most dangerous places in the world in defense of national security. We saw some adjustments in Strong, Secure and Engaged, the Canadian Defense Policy Statement, where people, meaning service members and their families, are put front and center in the policy. I think making that happen, whether it's you know at the CIA or within the military or in any other national security organization is a huge culture shift. But stories like Nada Bacos highlight that it's not just, you know, something that you uh, deal with very quickly, that it can be lingering, can take a long time. She highlights the ways in which you can reach out to get help. And I think also her story is important because it teaches us that it's not just people in uniform who suffer from PTSD. Mm. She worked for the CIA, so civilians can be affected as well. From the military to development agencies, there's really a diverse ecosystem of people working in war zones, and I think they deserve to have an expectation of care, if needed, when they come home. Well said. And I also thought what was very valuable here, Steph, is that she shows that not only do you confront it, but you can live through it and move on. It's still going to be something that she has to grapple with the rest of her life, but she's been able to be productive and negate, you know, have her family and move on. And so while she's had this experience and she's dealt with it very seriously, it's not something that's going to, it's something that she can work with and work through from now on. Uh, one of our very special episodes of the year was when 
I got the chance to interview 11 women serving in allied militaries. These were all women who are either colonels or equivalents from NATO and ANZUS countries who are traveling through Canada and the United States uh, for the Halifax International Security Forum. The first clip I want us to listen to is them comparing how Remembrance Day is celebrated in different countries. We just meet, met with Her Excellency, the, uh, the General Governor, and we did participate to the ceremony this morning for the 11th of November. Oh, fantastic. And, and yeah. do you have any reactions to, to this, uh, the way the Canadians celebrate, I guess it memorialize this day, is I guess the right word? Was, was this different from what you were expecting? Is this similar to the way it works in your own country? It's, it's kind of uh, the same, but the, the big difference, I would say, is the, uh, the Silver Cross they, you have inaugurated or you already have it for some years. So that's a very good way of showing the mothers or the sisters or the women actually being the victims of the, the fallen uh, soldiers in the forces. And I would say it's very different because in the U.S., and I had the opportunity to live in England for two years, so got to see how they do their Remembrance Day ceremonies. So more similar to what I saw in England. In the U.S., it's Veterans Day. We don't even call it Remembrance Day. And it's more, as the name implies, focused on the veterans. So you'll have a lot of parades, um, but nowhere near the same respect and in terms of laying the wreaths, the poppies, that just doesn't exist, I would say, in mass in American culture. I always appreciate how Remembrance Day is celebrated here, in part because I grew up in the United States. And so hearing the women talk about their, their observations was, was pretty, pretty moving to me. We recorded it right around Remembrance Day. We could probably do the same thing comparing Canadian provinces, to be honest. You mentioned moving from the United States to, to Canada. I know for me, moving from Quebec to Ontario, I noticed that Remembrance Day was a much bigger deal here. My kids sing the national anthem at school every day, and on Remembrance Day, there are special events and parades at their school. This certainly did not happen for me growing up in Quebec. This could be a generational difference here too, but I doubt it. I do feel a, a, a greater sense of pressure to wear poppies here than in, in, in Quebec. Uh, mm. I moved here to Ontario eight years ago, and so I... I Definitely see a little bit of difference between the provinces on that as well. We then went on to talk about a variety of issues. And one of the things that came up was cyber warriors, because a couple of the women who we were talking to are in the cyber divisions of their militaries or, or involved in, in such stuff. So let's listen to that clip. Has Netherlands been particularly plagued by cyber attacks or has it been sort of left in the background? No, I think we are being played as a plague as well as any other country is. And I guess one of the questions I have is when Canada is doing cyber defense thinking, it seems to almost be uh, talking about uniform people in uniform and then do we have to have the same kind of standards because our stereotypes of people who are at best at cyber in North America are people who are overweight, sitting in basements, vaping. Do you think that we should have different standards for cyber warriors as for the regular kinds of warriors? Yes, I do. And we are doing that currently. So we're looking very much into different kind of spectrums uh, to find personnel not necessarily will be deployed because they don't uh, meet up to all standards. Uh, but that's okay. Cyber is done behind the desk in the basement sometimes. So we are specifically looking for people who are very intelligent and score high in the autism spectrum and introverts. Uh, that is particularly the group we are focusing on. And so far we're successful in that.
I think this clip speaks to one of the challenges of the secure, strong security engaged document, which is the Canadian military wants to make a greater commitment to doing cyber stuff, but doesn't really know how to do it. And I wonder if they should pay more attention to allies like the Dutch, who are willing to have different standards for different military occupations. Your thoughts? Do I think cyber warriors need to bench press 200 pounds? No. Well, this speaks to a larger question of what kind of force we're going to need. So this brings up the larger issue of recruitment, which was one of the last things we talked about with these officers, and several of them are also involved in their recruitment divisions of their respective militaries. So let's listen to that. What do you find to be the biggest challenge for recruitment these days? Um, in Germany, we try to be an attract, uh, attractive employer, and we do everything for this with employer branding, with marketing, to attract more people. So we have the challenge at the moment um, that our um, numbers of servicemen and women rise again. It's hard to compete with the private sector on this uh, thing. On the one hand, for the young people, on the other hand, on the other hand, for specialists. Uh, from what I've described, you're a human resource manager. So, what does that entail? Well, in, in fact, um, recruitment is a problem, a major issue that we have to face too, especially uh, as I uh, deal with uh, flying crews. Uh, lots of companies in France are uh, uh, wants to get these crews, so it's an issue. But one of the most important one is to keep people in the in the air force. Uh, so we we are really working on this, try to to get uh, better conditions for them inside institutions, take care of them family so lots of uh, topics around uh, human resources to just to to keep this air force uh, attractive one of the challenges i know in canada i don't know about other places is being able to retain women in particular so why have you uh, two women stayed in your respective militaries You're, you have advanced educations you have probably lots of opportunities in the private sector but you've you've stayed along to the level of rank of colonel so you've been there for roughly 20 years Nearly 25. Don't ask the age. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 22 for me. <laughs> yeah. So why have you stayed? I love my job. I love my job as well. And uh, I, I do not only have one job, in fact. I have uh, several lives in the, in the Air Force. Uh, in the past, I was a pilot. Uh, I just uh, got into operations in, mostly in Africa, Afghanistan. Afterwards, I, I work in the headquarters as a program officer, so I had some contacts with the procurement agency, with the industries. Then uh, I went abroad. I was posted in the Netherlands, so I work in a multinational environment. Then uh, doing human resources, so lots of different jobs, and uh, I'm, so I'm very happy in, in the Air Force. Now, that's one of the funny things is that, in my experience in working with military officers, is they have that experience where they, they have many, many jobs over the course of their career. And so, on the one hand, it's a very, very interesting life. On the other hand, if your second job is like the best job you've ever, you will ever have, and then you have to leave that job, you, know, you can't do the same thing that you fall in love with. For instance, maybe for a pilot, you want to fly, but you have to spend a lot of your job not flying. Obviously, since you've stayed, you found the change to be better than, than, than staying in one spot for a while. But every job is very challenging mm -hmm. every time. I like this very much. It's a kind of adventure always to go on new topics mm -hmm. and work with new people. And um, I was very lucky always being able to work with uh, great teams. Yeah, same for me. From the beginning, I knew that I would not be a pilot for more than 20 years. So at the very start, I, I knew that once I would have to change and get uh, command and uh, other jobs. So it's not a problem. So Steph, do you have any thoughts on this? Is recruitment is one of the things that you are uh, researching? 
Yeah, I've been following national conversations on the recruitment of women in the Canadian Armed Forces, especially since there is a goal of increasing the number of women in the military so that they represent 25% of the force by 2026. So I went back to the website just to see where the Canadian Forces are at. Uh, the enrollment numbers have shifted a bit, I've noticed. So female enrollment was at 13.2% in 2015-2016 and rose to 17.2% in 2017 and 18. I also saw uh, that attention has been paid to recruitment women in CANSOFCOM, the Special Operations Forces Command. Their women now make up 10.3% of CANSOFCOM, and those numbers may have increased also because that's that was the 2017-18 data. Um, and I think this is, is probably a good segue to talk about episode seven called Extreme Embedding, where you interviewed anthropologist Tone Danielson from the Norwegian Defense Research Establishment. You asked her that question about women in the Special Operations Forces, uh, but we invited her to talk about her book, Making Warriors in a Global Era, because for this book, she spent 18 months with the Norwegian Special Forces. I really enjoyed hearing about her experience and all because it's great to hear from anthropologists once in a while. Defense conversations are, at least in my uh, opinion, dominated by political scientists and maybe a handful of military historians. But the other reason why it's interesting to hear from her is because uh, she does participant observation. So she embedded with the Special Operations Forces. And, and that can be tricky to do. So let's listen to her clip about her experience embedding with the Norwegian Special Forces. Uh, first of all, I spent three times as much time with mm -hmm. them. And so the process itself, me being with them on an everyday basis, changed them and made them more aware of their own culture, mm -hmm. their own practices and mindset, their skill set, and, and which made them much more competent to do the reorganization and, and also change their operational practices. So it was less about you giving them advice and more just your very existence being in an observation position that made them more self-aware and changed what they were doing. Yeah, both, I think. Mm -hmm. Of course, they also read uh, all the things I was writing up mm -hmm. because the first drafts, this is Special Operation Forces, so it's all classified. Mm -hmm. We really, because it's not that many studies around, so we had to figure out to, how to walk the walk and talk the talk, so to say. So we had, I needed their help. So mm -hmm. my informants were also my critics. And many of these guys are well-educated. I mean, the whole command team has their master's mm -hmm. degrees. So they were good critics. And then we figured out what we could write about according to the, the secret act of Norwegian legislation. But it was a process. And having good people to talk with them along the line shaped both the work and their work later. Well, that's really interesting. One thing that you recommended for me to do was to read your methodology chapter. And you said that you, in your methodology chapter, admitted a lot of mistakes that you made along the way. And I think you were being uh, a little humble because I, I didn't really see that many mistakes in your methodology chapter. So when you think of mistakes that you made along the way, what comes to mind? Well, as an anthropologist, what we actually look at are the borders, the limits. How far can you push things? And it's rather uncomfortable. You, in Norwegian, we have this expression of, you're walking around in the salad, stirring up things. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, and I did a lot of that <laughs> because I spoke fluent military. I am a social anthropologist by education, but I had worked for a decade with the armed forces. But I didn't speak Sufish. I didn't know where their limits were. So, yeah, I crossed some lines and I really had to push my own limits a lot to be respected and trusted and build um, the bonds of, of loyalty with them. So the reason why I think this kind of participant observation is tricky be is that on the one hand, you have to earn the trust of your research subjects so that you can have access to meaningful data and information. But you always have to protect your independence and objectivity as a scholar. And with everything that she experienced over 18 months, I can appreciate how that's difficult to navigate. Uh, I think it would have been really easy to drink the soft Kool-Aid and have that color your analysis. Uh, but I really think that sharing her experience in the way that she did on the interview provided some valuable insights to other scholars who may embark on that same kind of adventure. Yeah, I think that her, her entire interview was very inspiring uh, to do this kind of work. It requires an incredible commitment of time, being away from your family, doing this kind of thing. And I know it presents critical trade-offs about you know, if you get go to native, can you really see the things that you were trying to see? Can you be critical of the things that, that, that are in front of you? But I think she had a good balance between getting familiar with the people around her and yet still keeping a critical eye. I found the entire interview fascinating. And her research presentation on her book is was excellent. I saw that at the conference this summer. And uh, people should pick up her book. I think it's not the typical anthropologist book that whatever that might be. I think it's I think it's a really fascinating account of both special operations of thinking like a soft person, as well as a tale of what research looks like uh, in a different way. Okay, well, uh, one of the highlights of the year was an early interview we had uh, where we where you had a bilingual conversation with then Brigadier General, but now Major General Carignan, who is now commanding Canadian forces and actually NATO forces in Iraq. Yes, that's right. Interviewing General Carignan was a great experience. We've been hearing the name for a long time in Canada, but now she has gone global by taking up the command of the NATO mission in Iraq. And uh, when I was in London on, on the margins of the NATO summit, her name came up uh, over and over again. So General Kenya is a powerful advocate for women in the military, but on her own terms. Uh, and I asked her this question about uh, her leadership as a woman in the armed forces. And she has a very unique take on that. Let's listen. I also want to talk about your role as the first female general from the combat arms, because that's received a lot of attention and it's made headlines. This kind of headline comes with increased visibility for you. How have you handled this increased visibility? In some ways as well, it's a, uh, it's, I, I understand it's a responsibility to make sure that you, you represent this, this model, this possibility, this thing that is possible. I, I didn't have a military uh, model, but I had other great female models that I could look up to and uh, take some um, some hope that it, it's possible to uh, to grow uh, in 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 your own profession and uh, Louisa Bourg is, is such a is such a model Margaret Thatcher is another great model uh, so we've we've had lots of models so as a soldier as a military officer, I, I understand it's also uh, a responsibility to, to, to represent some hope that it's possible to, to get there. 
However, uh, I also understand that I'm a commander for everybody and I understand that I can be a role model for men as well. Um, and it's, it's, a, um, it's, it's a constant privilege to, uh, to represent uh, my team, whatever I do, in whatever I do. My favorite Jenny Carignan moment from this year is when she went on the show Tout le monde en parle. I was really struck by the types of questions she was being asked uh, to comment on. Uh, the host uh, talked about her deployment to Iraq and said, oh, but you know, how do you feel about not seeing your children for an entire year? And she was also asked if it was difficult to balance her career with having four children. You know, she was pretty good about it because she answered the question at first, but then came back to it and said, you know, if I had been a male general, you would not have asked me this question. And she's absolutely right. I think the interview would have been quite different with her predecessor, for instance, General Fortin, who's, who's a guy. And I don't think he would have been asked so many questions on work-life balance the way she was in that interview. But he also was not invited. So there's also an opportunity <laughs> in having someone like a female general uh, in the military because uh, then... You know, there's this fascination uh, with with women in, in the military, especially at such a high rank. And that makes it talk show worthy. And here the Canadian Armed Forces have an opportunity to capitalize on that fascination to raise awareness about the military and its operations. Well, that's really uh, a great observation by you, Steph, that that there's this real difficult trade off that she'll get more exposure because she's a woman. But then she'll get these these questions that men don't get because she's a woman. And, and it sounds like the general has a pretty good way of handling these things, of, of appearing on these shows and and presenting the best version of herself, the best version of the Canadian Armed Forces, but pushing back and reminding people that that there's still this uh, gendered lens that people use and we need to take seriously that fit male generals also have work life balances and all the rest of it. Thanks for bringing that piece in because it was a particularly valuable uh, observation. Well, it was a fabulous year of, of interviews and I wish we had more time because I have lots of other favorites I would like to share and I'm really excited about 2020 and the wonderful lineup we have for future interviews. Yes, uh, we definitely have a, a lot of people coming forward that want to speak with us. We've had some events that we haven't tapped yet, like the Year Ahead Conference. We have plenty of people to interview from that. I want to thank you for taking the time, Steph, to, to talk to me every two weeks. I know it's a burden uh, to hang out with me. <laughs> uh, it's not. <laughs> and I, we definitely owe a huge debt to... Uh, Melissa Jennings, who's our podcast producer, uh, who's been very creative behind the scenes, not just cutting and pasting what we do, but giving us really good ideas about what to talk about, about keeping us on task. A lot of what we've done this past year has been due to her imagination and her hard work. We're, we owe her a great deal of, of gratitude. And we also owe, owe Alvin Ninte some thanks as well, because she's she's a PhD student at, at Carleton, and she's been very helpful in organizing a lot of materials, getting us the research that we need, so that way we can see, sound informed, or at least. From my end, let me just thank Marianne Bouchard as well, because she's uh, an MA student at Queen's, and she's been helping me with a lot of the French language content. And that's uh, something else that Alvin does as well, is that she does do the translation of our stuff on the webpage uh, into French. And uh, we've had a lot of help from a lot of people. We definitely appreciate the feedback we've received. This is still very much a work in progress. So please send us your questions, send us your comments, so that way we can continue to improve. And if you've got people you want to listen to, let us know. We'll reach out and interview them, or at least we'll try to. Stephanie, have a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. I myself am about to go off and watch some Star Wars. That sounds awesome. Happy Happy holidays, Steve, and happy holidays to everyone.